Happy New Year, everybody. BT with Tales of the Gemini. Thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate first show of the new year. And I guess we're going to get right to it. we got a minute before our guests click in. So thank you, Malik, for the music. It's Malik's birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, Malik. 22 years old, still doesn't know who Pearl Jam is. And I, I still will always give him that kind of grief. I don't care who you are, race, creed, color. You got to know. Hey, on the street, you know who Pearl Jam is? Hey, you hear me? Uh, Steve's ready, so. Okay. Oh, here we go. My, my buddy, here, here comes my guest. Little lucky. Here we go. My, my guest. Here we go. He's going to come in. It's my favorite part. My favorite part coming in. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me yet? Here he is. What's up, Steve? What's going on, BT? How are you doing? Great to see you, buddy. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Steve English, the uh, the founder of the website Racing Lowdown, the commentator for World Superbike. Uh, also, man, you do everything. You're the color commentator for World Superbike. You also take great pictures. Can you see? Oh, my God. What's wrong? Is everything okay? Steve, oh, God. Oh, God, Steve, Steve, not that you had all day to do this, but Steve, it's five o'clock your time. You had all day to check this out. You, Steve, oh, God, Steve, he's been, oh, God, way to start off the new year, Steve. Steve, are you there? Oh, Jesus. Really? Really? Make me look bad on my show in America. I think he's out of the, he's out of the, Steve, can you hear me now? I can hear that bit, man. <laughs> okay, are we good? Yeah, I think so. What How happened? What happened? Uh, no audio coming through, so we, well, it won't be the first. It won't be the first time. That's why I gave you that. That's why I said that joke, and when I sent you the text, and then it happened there. So what? It's your, it's on your end. Well, uh, do you know what? It's going out and buying expensive headphones. This is the problem, mate. Whenever I cheap <laughs> shit ones, they always work fine. <laughs> Well, you know what you got to do is, man, I mean, you're making that kind of dough. I mean, you're in motorcycle racing, so I know you guys are making, yeah, you're making hand over foot with money, bro. That's what you're doing. Look at that. Look at those guitars in the background. Those guitars are probably signed by Eric Clapton. They probably are. They're probably worth thousands of dollars. You're living the life, bro. They were all bought whenever I was an engineer, not whenever (laughs) I was doing that job. (laughs) You know what? That's one thing I wanted to ask you is like, I try to do my homework on you and look you up. There's nothing on you except for like, I mean, and even it goes UFOs, Bigfoot, and then you. There's hardly any pictures of just you on, a, on, on your Instagram or anywhere. You're like real elusive. Even the picture I did see of you, you have your dog and your face is kind of like this. You're like, you're, you're, you're mysterious. I think women like that too. Yeah, the, you're mysterious. The dog's much, much better. She's much more photogenic <laughs> than I am. So that's why this picture's of Millie on it. Like. <laughs> but why is that though? Why don't you put your face out there? Because you don't honestly... And you, you're a great, you're a great commentator. You're not just good. You're a great commentator, by the way. Your information, I mean, it's awesome. You take great pictures on your website, Racing Lowdown. If you guys don't get a chance, go to RacingLowdown.com. You take great pictures. You're a great report. The only thing you can't do, I guess, is probably drive a rental car in Sepang. That's the only thing I, I heard that you can't do is when you drive. Hey. <laughs> Do that just fine. It was only at one corner I couldn't do it. What happened? Everyone else was fine for the full week. It was it was fine, so there was no issue there. Well, what happened? Was, uh, what happened? Well, what happened was we we picked the car up, and uh, whenever I was signing in all the forms, you know, and they were saying the parts that are damaged on the car, this, that, and the other, there was a couple of marks already on it. So then you're thinking, you know, what's the worst that happens with this? So we drove out of the car park, and when you come out of the airport in in, in KL. There's like four lanes wide and it goes around this right hand corner. So I'm out in the left hand lane and I sort of take my hands off the wheel and the car tracked 
all the way across the road. So clearly the car was pretty fucked to begin with. And then by the time I left the car back, it, it was really fucked. So you're going to blame it on the car? You're going to blame it on the car? Oh, hey, if there's one thing I learned from years of interviewing writers, it's never operator error. There's always something. <laughs> <to happen. It's- laughs> You're a good learner. You're a good learner. That is great, man. That is awesome. And no, but you also crashed. You crashed another one when we were in Laguna Seca. Didn't you try no, to take? No. Didn't you try to take it up the hill or something? It was a story about the hill on Laguna. Right. Well, the only crash I ever had was at uh, Sepang. I ripped a wheel off the car, so I did the whole job. But what was actually funny about Sepang was whenever I left it back and they said, "Right, you're going to have to pay a fine for this," and I was kind of there, like that's that's a bit harsh. And then they were saying, like. Oh, well, actually, yeah, you, you ran with us a lot, you know, because I'd been over for super bikes and GPs and all the tests and different things. So they ended up just saying there's a voucher for a free rental. So there was no, you know, there's no penalty on my side. So it was fine. And then whenever we went to Laguna, this was actually just a, a really bad case of mistaken identity as much as anything else. We were leaving the circuit and we went into the car park and we took a wrong turn. And then instead of like going down the dirt road that sort of takes you out of the car park, right? We ended up with the corkscrew sign, and then pretty quickly a helicopter comes in over the top of the hill there, and like all we're hearing is like the airwolf music playing in our heads. I'm thinking we're going to get deported for one or anything else, and uh, suddenly we ended up with like four security guards from Laguna, the track manager, everyone was there, and all all that we could say was you know we're idiots and we took the wrong turn and uh yeah that was pretty much what happened and, and it was it was unfortunate because you know we got branded as as uh you know just trying to be hooligans and really it was just that we were idiots i just remember, i vaguely remember that story but i remember you telling me that story when i was in laguna i was so tired in laguna i had ridden my motorcycle cross country to see uh, to laguna i went, went from indianapolis to uh, sacramento I was, I was performing in sacramento so i got there in two and a half days i was tired and i pushed out and rented a car and rode from Sacramento to Laguna. So that's three hours. I never caught up on my sleep. So when I saw you, I was so damn tired. But I just remember that story about you and, and, and security guards and going up the hill. No one lives a, night, a, a, a more hooliganish life than you. Every time I see you, it's always something different with you. Always. Well, usually it's not my fault as well. So, you know, <laughs> nine times out of ten, it's always... Someone else has gotten me into these situations. And certainly, whenever it's in the superbike paddock, I'll always blame it on Charlie Hescott. And I'm sure he always ends up blaming it on me as well. So as long as we've always got someone that's our foil guy, it's fine. It's peer pressure, man. It's peer pressure. So listen, I don't know anything about your life life before this. Like, okay, so you grew up in Ireland. I I take it Ireland, right? Yeah. Is it, what, Dundalk? so halfway between Dublin and Belfast, just close to the border. Okay, okay, so you grew up now, did you grow up loving motorcycles or or just a regular kid with sports? I mean, how did your love of motorcycles come about? Uh, I I loved everything whenever I was a kid. Like, I watched pretty much every sport. I kind of, I I fell in love with Formula One first, whenever I was probably about, my earliest memories is actually watching F1 races. And then I kind of watched a bit of bike racing, watched the road racing, the Isle of Man, TT and Northwest 200, that kind of thing. And then it was really whenever I was probably about 13 or 14 that I, I properly started watching 500s and then was hooked on MotoGP all the way through. But like, I, I, I always ended up just like whether it was bikes, cars, football, basketball, American football, anything like that. It was always kind of I, I watched it once, thought that's pretty good. And then 
just became completely immersed in it. Okay, are you a Gemini then? That's my kind of personality. Once I like something, I'm on it like this, and I stay. I'm like that that creature from Alien. I just attach like this, and I won't stay off when I like something. So, uh, are you a Gemini? What are you? I'm January, whatever that is. (laughs) (laughs) You don't even. You don't even know. I've never, I've never gone looking down, looking down the horoscopes for, uh, for my good fortune to meet a, 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 a tall, dark stranger. I, I already knew you, so that was enough. <laughs> we didn't meet each other. <laughs> we didn't meet each other till later in life. I think we met each other. Is it, it had to be at a GP, wasn't it? It was at a GP. Yeah, it was Coda in 2015, I'd say. Coda, and was it in the Alpine Stars hospitality, probably, probably, right? There's a good chance it probably was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now ever since then we've always been good friends. And I think I think you were drunk at one of the GP. I think or hungover. Hey, definitely, definitely not, mate. Definitely not. I've only ever drank once. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, man. Whatever. Don't give me that. I just remember us meeting, and we had a good time. I forget what it was. Alpine All Stars, uh, the hospitality, and we and we talked to him. We we had a great time. I forget which one it was though, but we had a good time. We bonded. And I think you were worried, like, because you were out of a job, basically. You're like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I thought, I, I said, remember? Yeah, that would that would have been uh, Valencia a few years ago, and yeah, one of those weekends where you're kind of on, on the hustle for things and everything ended up working out fine for me, obviously. But uh, whenever you're year to year freelance, it's always a bit of a bit of a shock at the end of the season. You can you can end up in a situation like that. I, I could tell, though, you had that kind of uh, I don't have a job. And, and I thought, man, you're going to be you're, I th- I, and I said you're going to be fine because what you do, honestly, at World Superbike, I'm not even kissing your ass. You you're excellent. I mean, I, I, I love, you know, what Steve Day does. He and Matt Hall are great. And, and your buddy Neil and Matt Dunn, they're awesome. And what they do, I, I, I love their chemistry. But what you do, man, you you break it down so great with the tires and the ride and the rider. And the one thing I listen to you trying to do my homework on you is I didn't realize the, the crucial element of the crew chief. You broke down what crew chiefs are like and, and, and their, their symmetry with the riders better than anybody I ever heard before, which I, which it didn't, it didn't occur to me that if a crew chief was a rider himself, that he can communicate with the rider on a different level than if he's a crew chief who's more technical. Yeah, well, I think one of the good things about, especially working in superbikes, because obviously whenever I worked in GP, MotoGP is a real pressure cooker and everyone's constantly at their absolute maximum trying to get the best results they can. And then whenever you go to superbikes, it's not that there's less pressure, it's that it's less intense because, you know, when you walk into the media center, there's only a handful of journalists compared to a GP when you could have a couple of hundred people. So all of the riders, all the teams, all the engineers, they've got a little bit more time to be able to talk to you because they know each other an awful lot more. And I think that's one of the big things that for me, moving to Superbikes really was good for me because suddenly you were able to get an awful lot more of an in-depth understanding of things compared to like in MotoGP. You can't, you can't call Marquez or Rossi and they're going to pick up the phone, whereas <laughs> in Superbikes you can. And that's what makes a big difference, I think, for anyone that's working in our championship well the the, 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 great, the great example of that is i swear to god is like i'm glad you said that is that you don't i don't notice it because i always go to gp i don't notice it until i go to a, a, a world superbike i remember going to laguna and everybody's like hey man what's going on bro are you good and you'll see top rack walking by himself nobody's mess messing with him and i swear to god man i don't know how we did this but we walked into honda's during the race before the race we walked into honda's garage they're make i mean they're trying to fix the bike to go into the grid and those guys hey uh 
uh, excuse me. And like they're trying to get the bike. And I'm like, should I even be here? And it's, I forget which rider it was. Uh, I think it was a replacement. He was, I mean, it was a Honda. And I'm, I'm in the garage watching the race with those guys. I was there when Gigi, um, they won the race the year with Gigi had a, was it with Aprilia. I'm in the garage with them as they won. I'm hugging them. And I'm sure they're like, who the hell is this guy? I had it on videotape. And I mean, it's just, they have no security. It's the greatest shit in the world. I mean, it, it's like, it's like going from, like you said, the pressure cooker to like, it's like a hippie vibe. Like, hey man, it's cool. You want to come back here? Want to see how bikes are made, man? Come on. You want a helmet? I mean, that's what it's like. I, I love World Superbike. And I always want to know, what is the stigma attached to it though? You know, it's like, it's like, you, see, you hear GP riders, they'll like, it seems like, like they'll delay going to World Superbike as long as possible. You know, and I was wondering, what is that stigma? Because I think it's great racing. It's closer racing. And, and, and like I said, the, the, the pressure's not there so much. Yeah, well, I know for me, like whenever I went to Superbikes, I was always excited to go because I had always gone to races. Even whenever I was working in GP, I still went to some PSB races. I still went to road races, still went to a couple of Superbike races. So I was already aware of what the paddock was like. Right. And I was always quite keen for that because at the same time I was going to pretty much anything like i was going to formula one races i went to nascar races i went really to you went to nascar races yeah i went to daytona 500 in 2012 get the oh, how'd you how'd you like it how'd you like it i thought it was class they've got uh, massage beds for photographers so whenever you come in you know, you're, able to get, you're able to get neck massage and everything i was coming back thinking you know being a photographer is pretty good at this <laughs> Let me tell you something. That was always my favorite race, and well, for a couple of reasons. One, me and my mom uh, would watch that race every year. Daytona 500. We watched that race every year, and I remember we first started watching it the year. I don't know if you remember that year where Kill Yarbrough uh, wrecked into the Allison brothers, and they had that fight on the infield. Do you remember that? Yeah. And 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 after that, we we bonded over the Daytona 500, man. And we we bonded over Daytona 500. And I live in Indianapolis, and she came to watch the 500 when I was out working. And I and I got her tickets, got her set up. Her and my brother were supposed to come up. Well, his wife came up, and that's when I knew trouble was going to start. They got in a fight. They drove up from Oklahoma eight hours. They got in a fight, and that was that was over five years ago. And to this day, they haven't spoken. I'll tell you what, that would have been uh, would have been one hell of a race then that ended up causing that sort of a rift. <laughs> Motorsports has ruined well, my I life. I have to say one thing, what? because having lived in Texas for long enough, I, I'd also know that, like, obviously it would have been Oklahoma's fault for that, so I've got to make sure that oh, uh, you mother get that type in. You motherfucker. Really? You're going to take Texas over Oklahoma? Really? Really? Yeah, well, I, I, lived in, I lived in Dallas for a while whenever I was working down there. I lived in Dallas, too? Where'd you live in Dallas? Where'd you live? I lived in Fresco on the north side. Okay, I lived I lived right off of a off, off of North uh, uh, Park Park Central and North. Uh, you know where uh, Judge Roy Beans is, and the mil- uh, no, I, 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 we 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 ended up because I was working over there. Was kind of you were doing a few months. Never really actually went into the into the center of the city too much. Only went in a couple of times really. What, what? We ended up doing a load of exploring all the way up around the different places up there. You go into Oklahoma one weekend, you go down to Austin, you go wherever. What, 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 did, you, what did you work? Who did you work for in, in Texas? Uh, I was working for Ericsson. I was a telecoms engineer. Get the, are you serious? So, so how'd you like it? Did you like Texas? Did you like the States? Oh, I loved it. Really? Like, uh, with, with, with that job, I was pretty much traveling all over the world. And the only place that I would have actually moved to would have been probably Texas, California, or just staying in Ireland. Okay, so okay, so you grew up in Ireland. Okay, so take me through. You t- grew up in Ireland. Okay, lover of motorsports, but then you t- uh, you took a, a degree in engineering, obviously, right? Yeah, I did uh, software engineering. 
So how did how did the jump go from engineering making good money? I'm assuming to uh, going to the world of poverty with motorsports. I mean, how did that happen? When, when did you well, decide? I, I, didn't, I didn't like money that much. It seemed, and then suddenly, whenever there was no money, <laughs> yeah, your money's I, overrated. Yeah, yeah. But money's pretty fucking good. So uh, that's where it ended up being more of a struggle. But uh, like for me, I left uh, I left college in 2009. Okay. And at that stage, you were right into the middle of the the crash, so there was no jobs for anyone. So I started doing a little bit of, of motorsport writing just for the local paper here. And then once I got an, an actual job, like I went uh, I went to Ericsson in probably Easter 2011, I think. Okay. And uh, started with them. And then once I was working with them, I was able to start going to a few more races and things like that. But being an engineer, I, I enjoyed that. Like, because whenever I was a kid, I only ever had like a couple of jobs that I wanted to do. I wasn't one of those kids that sort of thought like, I want to be like an astronaut or I want to do this, I want to do that. I was incredibly boring and wanted to be a software engineer. Are you serious? You that was that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, from whenever I was probably like seven or eight, I'd sort of decided, all right, well that's that's the college course I'll do, and I'll just kind of I'll become working computers. That'll be fine, and I was always happy enough with that. And then, sort of one thing led to another, took me down a different path. Wow. Okay. So when you when you went to Texas, you had to be blown away by the just you know everything's big in Texas. But just coming from Ireland, and I and I've never been to Ireland. I think I I think I had a layover there once. But the, coming from where you're coming from to Texas and the grand and the grandness of Texas and that attitude of Texas, did that just blow you away? I mean, I mean, were you taken aback? Like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? Or did you just immediately just immerse yourself in the culture? Did you get like cowboy boots? Drink sweet tea? Going to get, get a horse. I got, I got my cowboy hat. Yeah. Did, did you get, really? Yeah. Fucking right. Of course <laughs> it did. You couldn't, you couldn't not on a cowboy hat. Did, I already had it from before I went, mate. Did, did, okay. Did, 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 uh, did you get in the country music? Yeah, country music? Uh, no. <laughs> so you I, didn't get... I will say one thing. I will say one thing, though. I was always an outlaw country fan. Me? Uh, yes. My dad used to be in a Johnny Cash tribute band. Oh, so you serious? I ended up listening to a lot of that. So I like that side of things. But it's whenever you ended up putting country and Western together that you realize that those two things could never go together. And like Ireland's probably the worst place in the world for it as well. This country is absolutely mad for like Garth Brooks and all that kind of shit. Yeah. And uh, that obviously just somehow managed to pass our house by, thankfully. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? Like you said, though, it's the outlaw country I love. I mean, Waylon Jennings, to me, is the greatest country artist of all time. Waylon Jennings, you got to throw in Willie Nelson. And I, and people, and I love uh, Johnny Paycheck. Johnny Paycheck was great. Johnny, you know, you could take this job, Ben Shipman. I ain't working here no more. I mean, you could feel the cross burning from that music. That's how great in country it really was, man. I love that. <laughs> it really was great. But, you know, but I I mean, it, I, I just can't believe that your dad was in an in a, in a, in a outlaw country like Johnny Cash tribute band. That's incredible, man. Yeah, dad was Willie Nelson in the tribute band. So uh, <laughs> he ended up basically the highwayman. And uh, dad was Willie Nelson. He played the harmonica and then he sang a few songs as Willie as well. So, so, so what's your now? What's your music of choice now? Or what do you like now? Uh, Anything but country? Anything but country, pretty much. Um, I'm still be a. I'd still mostly be like a, a classic rock fan as much as anything else. If I'm if I'm, if I'm playing anything, it will tend to be that. Are you a U2 fan? Hmm? A U2 fan? You like U2? U2. Eh, Are you? Some. Dude, that's sacrilegious. They're from Ireland. They're your brothers, yeah, bro. Yeah, but we're a nation of begrudgers, mate. D so you have to you have to hate it. <laughs> 
They're your brothers, bro. You two, I love you two. You two to me is in my top five groups of all time. And by the way, my producer is 19 years old, 19 year old white kid. My, my engineer, 22 year old black kid. Both of those guys don't know who Pearl Jam is. Well, do you know what? I'm not a big Pearl Jam fan. But you should, like- but you know who they are, right? Oh, yeah. Thank I, you. I like probably. I like three three Pearl Jam songs. I think are really good, and then the rest of it I kind of always that's not the, I'd listen to. But it's not the point. The point is they don't know who Pearl Jam is. And every day I come in, I want to give them a whooping. I want to take my belt off and give them a whooping. They don't know who Pearl Jam is, bro. Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam. It's like it's like me going over there. And like, you you know who U two is? Yes. You can go to the hood and go, hey man, you know who U two is? Yeah, I know who U two. I mean, everybody knows who U two is. The brothers in the hood know. Hold on, watch this. Hey, you guys know who U two is? The group U two. You ever heard of them? Okay, as a, okay, he didn't know. But anyway, most people, <laughs> there's a guy that walked by and he goes, oh. too small a sample size and have your own hoping for one random person to answer the right. <laughs> well, I took a chance, man. You, you got to take a chance and walk without a net, man. So Now, do you play You play guitar, obviously, right? Yeah, I play guitar. Uh, lead guitar. And, uh, I used to play a bit of piano, and I've got a bass as well, but I'm shit at it. And uh, it's mostly guitar for me. Jesus, man, you're... A very talented guy didn't even know this, man. That's okay. So where did you go? When when did you decide when you were doing engineering in Texas and you're you're still in the motorsports, when did you decide to take that leap and just go all the way into motorsports? Well, for for me, it probably goes a little bit earlier than that because whenever I was probably twelve until about twenty one, twenty two, I was always pretty sick. So missed a lot of school, missed a lot of college. And whenever you know you're lying in in hospital and things like that and you're thinking about what do you want to do? You always end up thinking you want to do something that you properly enjoy, that you really get your passion into. And for me, that was trying to figure out something to be able to get into Formula One or MotoGP. And kind of, I backed into into writing and it was just luck of the draw. I think there's a lot of us in the paddock that are like that. You know, Neil, obviously, whenever he was on with you, he was talking about how in college he did English and history and you know, he had, a, he had a writing background, right. whereas for most of the rest of the guys, we don't, we've just got it where you've got a passion and you want to put your time in and you want to, you want to see where you can, what you can get from it. And I was definitely in that camp and that's why I'm a pretty shit writer, but no. talk away, that, that's pretty good. So I think it's one of those things where you need to, you need to find out what you want to do. And then whenever I got a job, I was trying to figure out how I could make that work to, to then be able to get to some races and just be able to go to a few races you know I, I, like we've talked about it before when we're at races but when you're looking at it and you're thinking how cool is this yeah and whenever i was you know 24 25 that was what i was thinking was like, that would be pretty cool and uh, kind of just one thing led to the other to keep doing it I, you said it i mean to me personally when you there's nothing like being in that paddock and you smell that, and you smell the gas, and you smell that the lean, and you and you and you hear that that bike being warmed up. I always say, no matter what time you get to the paddock, somebody's always warming up a bike. I mean, you could be the first one in where they literally have to unlock the lock for you to come in, and you, you always hear woo, woo. We go, how is that possible? Somebody's always warming up a bike, but it's the greatest sound, it's the greatest smell. And if you're there really, really, really early, watching the riders walk around before they put their leathers on, I mean, to me, I still love that. There's nothing that beats that man so do you still get that feeling now i mean have you kind of has it left you or do you still have that feeling when you go to a track uh, maybe a different track you know where you go like when you go to portamount whatever or do you still have that same feeling like i can't believe i'm doing this or is it more like a job now uh, well it's both yeah but you still always get that feel, especially i think 
last year would have made that very clear for everyone. Yeah. Because whenever you've got like the gap from Phillip Island or, or Qatar until the Hareth races for GP and Superbikes, you know, all of us were looking at it and we were thinking, you know, I want to get back to work. I want to be able to, you know, even just watch a race. Like I was sitting down, I was watching the Moto America races when they came back on. I was watching NASCAR because it was on early. And you got yourself a bit of a fix for it. And then whenever we went to like our first race in Hareth last year, suddenly you got that relief of like, oh yeah, we're, we're all back to work. But more important than that is, you know, we're all able to see see some racing again. Because at the end of the day, like I know that if, if I didn't have this job in the morning, I'd still be sitting there watching every practice session, watching every race. Yes, I, I feel the same. I, I do the same thing too. I mean, I can't stay up like, like I used to now. I and mean, even though I, 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 I stock up. Say what now? Getting old now, you know? no, no, don't ever say old. I'm not. I'm getting more mature. Don't ever say old. I'm getting I'm more mature now. I, I have to. I have to uh, think smarter. So what I do is I take a nap before FP1, and then I watch FP1, FP2, and MotoGP. No, FP1, MotoGP, and then I take a little nap uh, for uh, for uh, Moto2. Then wake up for FP1 and Moto3. FP2 for Moto3. It's, I got it down to a system now. And when you guys come on, I actually watch you guys the first practice a little bit, but I damn sure make sure i watch the super pole and you know and then i i just i i still love motorsports like that so i think it's kind of cool that you finally got your passion and you went all in because you do everything but it's from your uh from your uh the website with the racing lowdown and you also write for asphalt and rubber which i mean i love your articles on there you talk about the mentality of riders i mean it's and to, to be that close that what was your like what was your motorsport hero growing up you say you liked f1 first who was your motorsport hero at first who was your first one uh, Michael Schumacher. Really? Yeah. Now, now, did it hurt your heart when when Lewis broke his record? I mean, or tied his record? Did, did you like? Were you bittersweet? No, records are there to be broken, and they, like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anyone does after your your childhood hero will always still be the best driver, the best yes. rider ever. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if Hamilton goes on to win 150 races. True. I'm still going to say Schumacher's better than him. Yeah. Because. Whenever I was a kid, he was one of the reasons that sort of got you hooked on racing. Right. So, you know, that's that's more important than any of the numbers that will come up. You're looking at, like, who's dominant for their eras as much as anything else, and those two guys are. So, for me, you know, the, the, the kind of riders and drivers that got you into a sport are always going to hold that little bit extra. No, like, I remember the first time I was interviewing Wayne Rainey, and I wasn't a massive fan, like, whenever I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, when... Rainey was still racing, but uh, I always kind of got drawn towards him whenever I was watching it on the TV. So yeah. the first time I was interviewing him, I was nervous, you know, and I was kind of there like, you know, I'd interviewed tons of people at that stage. But it, I, I went back to this almost being like your first interview. And I kind of said to him, all right, Wayne, you just start talking. And eventually, I'm sure I'll be able to figure <laughs> out how to ask you a question. And so he was there. Yeah, cool. So he started talking away and, and you know. Within you know, within a you know, couple of couple of seconds, you're you know into a conversation, so it's fine. But like that first time talking to him, he was still one of your childhood heroes, and uh, that's that's something that I don't think should ever leave anyone because you need to hold on to that passion all the way through. Oh, that is great, man. I mean, so okay, so it was it was uh, Michael Schumacher and F one. Okay, who was your motorsport hero? Let's say in NASCAR. Uh, I didn't really have one in NASCAR to be honest. I like Jeff Gordon. Okay, but uh, that was probably just because he was so he, he he was different. 
he was so different to everyone else because he was the first of those really like clean cut yes. car drivers. He knew how to so, talk. He didn't have a twang. Was, and he was winning everything whenever I was a kid. So you were drawn to that as well, probably. But I wasn't really, I wasn't a massive NASCAR fan. I was a big IndyCar fan. Really? Okay, who, who's your favorite IndyCar? Who's your favorite IndyCar? Alex Zanardi, hands down. Really? Yeah. I love Zanardi. I love Dario Franchitti and uh, Juan Montoya. I got a chance to interview uh, Dario Franchitti. Well, we were on the same radio show together, man. And I, I love Dario Franchitti, but I think growing up for me, it had to be Rick Mears. Rick Mears would always be number one to me. Rick Mears was the dude. I just remember when he, do you remember that race he caught Jordan, uh, Gordon Johncock? Remember that race? He had a uh, he had a twelve second lead, and Rick Mears every lap he'd bring it down by a second. And the announcer was like, "Hey, he brought it down by a second. Oh, he just Gordon Johncock's just trying to, you know, uh, save the tires. There's nothing wrong here." And then he got down to nine seconds. Oh, he's just saving the tires. Then he got down to five seconds. Well, he's definitely catching him. And I remember that. And Rick Mears is always to, to, for me. He's like you're Michael Schumacher. Rick Mears is always special place in my heart, man. So now in, in GP was it always uh, was it always uh, um, uh, Wayne Wayne or was it anybody else? As far as your hero, to, to be honest, I didn't really ever have anyone that I would say was properly my hero because, as I said, like by the time Wayne retired or at his accident, I was probably too young at that stage and, and wasn't immersed into into five hundreds enough at that stage. So I didn't really have like a big hero whenever I was sitting watching the races. Mm -hmm. It was more so whenever you were looking at the history of things, then you're there saying, "Oh yeah, you know, Rainey was definitely." You know, I, I chose well whenever I was keeping an eye on that guy. And uh, I always kind of did get drawn to the to the American ex-flat trackers because, I you know, everyone loves the style of them. Like and who? Like there's who? always something like for, for everyone over here about the American that comes in. And uh, so, you know, you kind of get drawn to different people. Who's your favorite flat tracker? American flat tracker. American flat tracker. Uh, I don't think I, I would. I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to pick anyone because I didn't. Because it's not shown over here. You're just kind of reading them. Yeah. And you're kind of looking at some videos and things like that. Like I think that uh, the one thing that always shows you the the importance of flat track and why everyone thinks it's cool is what's the best video on MotoGP.com. It's when Kenny Roberts came to do the Indy Mile. Oh my God! Yes, yes. How great was that? Were you there? Did you go there? No, I wasn't there. The only year I went to Indy, they didn't run the mile. Oh my God, man! Kenny Roberts. How have you ever interviewed him yet? Yeah, talked, I've met him a couple of times. I never. I don't think I've ever interviewed him. Interviewed him. I've only just chatted to him. I, I love Kenny Roberts, man. That guy. He's 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 he's, he's crotchety, but he's he's funny at, at, while he does it. You know what I mean? Like he'll say what he thinks, but it's not in a mean way. It's kind of. But it, I just love Kenny Roberts. He kind of changed the game. I love how the Spanish basically have copied what the Americans did, and now they run the game now. You know, now I don't know if you went to Rocco's Ranch and watched him run flat track there. What those guys do now is un. Unbelievable! I went there the night before uh, uh, Catalonia and watching those guys flat track. Holy shit. Have you been there before? No, I haven't been, but uh, I've talked to Johnny Ray and Alex Lowe's about it for a couple of different features I was doing. And they, they've just said like just how incredible it is. Oh, what the, it, it, I, I, can, I cannot do it justice, but the Spanish, they copied us, they copied the Americans, and they uh, surpassed. I can't really say surpassed. I, I really believe if we took our top flat trackers over there and racing against their flat, top flat trackers, I think it'd be a good race. I like when they did the uh, Prestigio, and you know when Marquez went against, uh, I think, Jared Meese and... Uh, uh, and uh, uh, the Rod Baker came over. Yeah. Came over How great was those? I mean, I miss that. How great were those races? 
Do you know what? Because like, I went to three of them, and the first one I went to, I thought was unbelievable. Yeah. And then the second one I went to, I thought that was pretty cool. And then by the third one that I went to, which would have been the last one, I was kind of thinking this has ran its course because it wasn't it wasn't making a step year on year. And I think one of the biggest problems was that because everything was set up around Mark setup, right. <laughs> it ended up being a bit too too close to bone for that. Not saying that there was anything wrong with that. It was an indoor setup, and at the end of the day, the the Catalan fans want to see Mark going out and you know taking it to Mies or Baker or whoever was coming over at, at those stages. So that made sense. But I think we missed a trick by not really having it as a proper big event where you could sort of you know have everyone on, on a more equal foot. Now, have you ever wanted to be a racer growing up? Did you, did you want, like, did it did it burn you? Like, you know, I think I want to try karts and maybe have that, hey, yeah, that dream in the back of your head, like, maybe I can do this, or were you always just a spectator? No, I'm shit at most things, so <laughs> it was a very easy decision for me. <laughs> um, for, for me, like, honestly, um, I, never, I never really thought about wanting to go down that route because, and, and it's probably a lot of it comes down to the fact that even whenever I was a kid, and even now, like I'd still look at it and say that you know my job is a job that someone else should have. You never think those kind of jobs are going to be yours. Yeah. So I, you know, I didn't have that focus or that belief that you know when you talk to writers, they all of that. I was kind of I'm, I'm much more of a go with the flow kind of thing, and <laughs> you know everything's going to work out all right. I don't know why I want to come back. I don't know why I want to come back to Texas. But did you uh, develop a love for sweet tea? No, uh, the only thing I really developed love for was barbecue. Oh, my. Okay, uh, uh, beef brisket? Yeah, brisket, sausage, and ribs would be the, the mainstay. But I find the chicken was actually the surprising thing down in Texas. You, you like fried chicken also? No, not fried chicken, just barbecue chicken. Oh, my. Okay, how about, uh, how about chicken fried steak? Uh, I you know, I can't remember it at all. Oh my! It's it's like the I, I, it's like like a patty I, with, I with gravy it, on it. I can't remember. So it must have been really really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna tell Texas. Okay, who has the best barbecue in Texas? Uh, we the uh, we had a play. Well, we went to Franklin's whenever we go down to Austin, obviously for Coda. Yeah, and it was unbelievable. Uh, but we had like a really run down shitty place quite close to us in dallas that we went to and it, it it was great it was just like a guy on the side of the road he just turned up and really he'd uh serve up whatever he cooked and he was he was great oh so that was the best barbecue you had in tech the best you've ever had that's the best i'd say I, franklin's was the best i had okay okay and what if you had to pick beef brisket or barbecue chicken or ribs which one if you had to pick uh, you'd always go with brisket because you can't get it really well here yeah, you or, get ribs anywhere, but like uh, proper brisket here is hard to find. <laughs> I can imagine it's iron. Matter of fact, what are you guys known for besides shepherd's pie, which is god awful, by the way? Hey, well, you know, shepherds need to be eaten too. <laughs> uh, the the only thing that Ireland's actually produced and made as their own would be, oh, not really an awful lot. We're known for our drinks. You can't eat drinks. You can't eat drinks. You can't eat drinks. Yeah, you freeze it and cut it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's why, honestly, when I see a, a bar, like an Irish bar that has food, I go, the Irish aren't known for their food. They're, they're known for their potatoes and drinks, and that's it. And being able to fight, and that's it. Those are the three things you guys are known for. Yeah, well, you know, everyone loves spuds. <laughs> and sometimes you need a good scrap to be able to clear the air. <laughs> Although I would say, one thing that's always annoyed me is the 
the portrayal that Irish people are the only people in the world that like potatoes. I love potatoes. I love everyone loves them, mate. Like it's, it's they're perfectly perfectly fine for every single nation that loves loves a good one. It's like chicken. You know, black people always get a bad reputation for like fried chicken, whatever. Everybody likes chicken. Everybody. Neil loves fried chicken. Neil, I'm, I'm going to take Neil to fry, uh, a fried, fried chicken joint in Austin and Coda when it come, we, we can go knock on wood. And I'm taking him to get some fried chicken. Everybody likes chicken, but we get the bad reputation. It's like you and, it's like you and potatoes, you know what I mean? I mean, everybody has that one stereotype. We're like, really? Because everybody else loves it. Why do we get the bad rep? But yeah, so yeah, you like chicken. I like potatoes. I like cheesy potatoes. Yeah, everyone likes cheesy potatoes. Oh. You could, you nice know, load of potato, a little bit of bacon in there. She can't go wrong. No, I'm vegan, so I can't eat uh, bacon. But the, uh, you put some cheese and potatoes. My God, I mean, vegan cheese and potatoes. Mm. No, I was gonna say, Mitch. So what would you say? Why do you? I was you... gonna say that. You know, <laughs> like, how how vegan are you on on the scale? Um, uh, I, I I try to I try to go. I'm not I'm, I'm not like like hardcore vegan. I'm like a I'm like like. I won't. I won't ask for. I'll ask to leave the cheese off. But it comes with cheese on. I go okay, and I'll eat it. Let's put it that way. I'm like that kind of vegan. I'm not like no. You know what I mean? I'll eat it if it comes with. But I definitely don't touch the meat. You know, I don't touch the meat at all. I I had uh, Matt Dickens on uh, a couple of episodes ago. Ever since then, man, I've been really trying to clean my shit up. I really have. I mean, he he made me want to get better. You know, like lose his gut and get in a really good shape. So that's, ever since I had him on, I've been doing that. You know, I mean, like, yeah, hardcore. There's nothing worse than talking to guys like that. I remember I did <laughs> one interview. With uh, with a personal trainer for one of the writers, and I finished up the interview. I, I hung up the phone and I, I went out and ran five k because I was there. Like, oh man, he's just he's he's made me have to do that now. So do not talk to people like that. It's dangerous for you. <laughs> yeah, it's good for you, man. You got to be in good shape because you know why? Because I, unlike you, I always wanted to be a writer, and it's always been my. I mean, honestly, if you've watched me on the grid. I'm always like, ah, I want to be there. And so that's why I'm always like around the riders, like, ah, you know what I mean? And that's why I love walking on the grid and watching them and, and trying to figure out what's going on in the back of their head. You have the greatest luxury. You've been to every kind of race. You've been to the GPs. You've been to BSB. You've been to the road races. Now, how is that different when you go to like, uh, you've been to Isle of Man. Do you, you ever go to the Northwest uh, 100? Yeah, I go to the Northwest 200 every year. And they... I've gone to the Ulster as well a couple of times, but uh, it's usually just TT in the Northwest I get to each year. So, now, how do you soak in that atmosphere? I mean, do you do you enjoy it as much, or do you, or is there apprehensive? I mean, how do you? Because it, it's, it's a whole different lifestyle. It's a whole different kind of paddock, so to speak. I mean, I, like, what's your vibe when you go there? Do, I mean, do you enjoy it? Do you not? Do you look at it like kind of like hooligans, or or do you like the kind of like the privateer kind of like camaraderie of it? No, I love it. It's like I can understand why people have their ideas about something like the TT especially. TT is a very dangerous race in a lot of ways. Yes. But when you look at, uh, and when you talk to the riders about it, I remember I interviewed Josh Brooks about it one year, and he was saying that he spent his whole life training to be a professional motorcycle racer. He's won races at the world championship level. He's a British champion. He finds it very strange when people say to him, why do you do the TT? That's very dangerous. Because for him, when he's sitting on a bike, that's whenever he's in most control of anything in his life. So yeah. why would he feel afraid of what's going to happen out there? As long as he knows the track, as long as he's prepared, as long as he's done all of his homework, as long as the team have done their work, why would he be worried? He can go out and just enjoy it. And I think that's the mentality that all the top riders have. But certainly for the guys that are you know, at the back of the field, they're just doing it for the love of it. Yeah. And that's a very different one because instead of having, you know, 
Honda or you know Tyco BMW, all those kind of big teams over the last few years they've been in, in road racing. You could just have your mate on the uh, on the spanners. Yeah. And has he done enough work to be able to do that, or did he have to actually go and do his normal forty hours a week? And he's been building this bike in the spare time. Yeah. So you know those guys are the ones that like you properly respect what they're doing. But when you go to the TT, you're you're there because you want to be there. And there's a lot of people that, you know, will talk about the TT and, and, you know, they'll say the right things about it. But whenever you actually talk to them privately, they're very dismissive of it. And for me, I look at the TT and I love it. But I can 100% understand why there's certain people in, in different paddocks, whether it's riders, whether it's engineers, whether it's team managers that are against the TT. Oh, because, yeah. you know, they've lost friends. They've lost, you know, team members. At, at those kind of events so i can understand why they'd be turned against it i've never really had that souring i haven't lost anyone that i've been close to right but the thing but you know i i always say this and i and luckily it's never happened to me either knock on wood but i would think if that did happen at least you know and it sounds so cliche and it sounds like a bullshit statement but i think it's the truth is they died doing what they love doing i mean granted i look at the aftermath if they had a wife or they had kids man that that's what would hurt but the only soldiers is knowing you know what they went out doing what they wanted to do and and their and their mates knew like their significant other knew this is what he loved or this is what her, she wanted to do i mean that's what they wanted to do I mean, it didn't work out, but man, that they died doing their passion. And so it's like, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know that world. I'm always going to be an outsider looking in, always. I, and I kind of like that in a way. And, I, and I'm grateful for being able to, to get as inside as I've gotten. And I love it. Like talking to you, talking to anybody in, in the game, man. That's what I love doing, getting that mentality. Because we don't really have it over here as as a passion as it is over there and that's what i love about what you guys have like i said you you've been to the eight hour in suzuka what's that like i mean what's that atmosphere like it's got to be different than than gp and and road racing you know so how how was that uh, atmosphere like i loved it the first time i went was 2017 and i went 18 19 and would have gone last year obviously if it hadn't been cancelled but it's a it's a fantastic event you know you go to at the end of the day, you fly into Japan, you go to a totally new country, you're in a different area, you see things that you know you don't normally see in uh, in other championships. You get a bit longer, and the event itself is just massive, you know. So you see the the teams and the the amount of investment they make. You see how the riders are treated, and they're treated like absolute royalty. Really? Um, like how? Like how? Like how? In what way? And how's it different? Uh, you know, they'll go out for for dinner or whatever, and it's you know anything anything you want for the table kind of thing and you know everyone's able to just get whatever they want and the, the manufacturer is just there as long as you win this race we don't care what this costs we don't care what we have to do to make you happy if you're happy oh you're going to ride well and we're going to make sure that we're able to win when you look at uh, in the middle of the race you know when the riders are just getting off the bike and they uh, you know they're sweat drenched and they're just getting ready to go into the into the cool down baths and then they get the massages and then they're back onto the bike again and you know all those things that go into it the, the size of the team is massive like the yamaha team for the eight hours is probably the same size as their MotoGP gp team wow you know, the, the garage is absolutely packed and uh, it's just filled with all of the best minds that japan can have to make sure that they're able to win that is okay big big who has the best after party of all of, 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 of road racing, GP, World Superbike, Moto America, uh, uh, whatever. Who has the best after party? 
Were you well, like, I'm a, I'm a journalist, man. I'm always working on a deadline. So how would I know? <laughs> Don't give me that well, shit. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got the MotoGP after party a couple of times. And Superbikes, we used to do a few during the season. You have yeah. one in Phillip Island. You have one usually at the, at the end of the European season. And then maybe one at the end of the year. But uh, Qatar is not really the best place for an end of season party for yeah. some reason. But, uh, <laughs> it, it's like anything else. It's, it's, uh, it's not not the championship that makes a good party it's just to every end of hanging out with and i'm lucky in, in gp especially i've got a really good group that that we've always hung out together and we've been really lucky that we've all been able to sort of come through the ranks together as well which is crazier world super sport 300 or moto 3 300 when hendra was in it was definitely crazier <laughs> you think so yeah, Hendra was probably the loosest rider I've seen. In any <laughs> but I think that for, I think if you were looking at it, probably three hundreds because it's the one that's hardest to predict. It's the one that you know you can look at it and you can say these two riders might be able to get themselves to the front, but a lot of the time they can also be fifteen. Whereas in Moto three, it tends to stabilize stabilize over the course of the season. Whereas in 300, it still stays random all the way through. I mean, I always say Moto 3 is a street fight, and they say go, and at the end, like, okay, who's still standing? And and World Super Sport 300 is pretty much the same also. I mean, I mean, I, the, the thing that surprised me this year was when uh, Buies, uh, am, am I pronouncing that right? Buies? When, when he, Bose. yeah, Bose, duh, duh, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, he's not. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, this was the biggest problem that we had all the way through the season because we started off the year, and a lot of the times with 300 riders, you, you want to do your best to be able to pronounce things correctly. And we went and we asked someone, How do you pronounce his name? And the problem with it was they were coming from, I think, like a, a, a French speaking part of Belgium, and they said, Oh, it would be Buis. So we called him Jeffrey Buis for a lot of time. Obviously, Jeffrey's from. From the Netherlands, but uh, you know, we thought someone from the Lowlands, right? That'll be fine. And then we got it where he was, he was actually Jeffrey Boss. And then we had it where instead of it being Boss, he was Bose. So you're just kind of there, like Big Jeff's leading the race, lad. He's doing a great job. Big Jeff, you're doing the down if you don't at times. Do you just roll his name? If you don't know, do you just roll like, and we have Jeffrey Bush on, on row three? And I mean, do you do that? If I don't know anybody's name, I'll roll it. You know, just roll it and they go, what do he say? Because it's going to come up on the graphics anyway. So if you don't really know it, just roll it. Like, just say like, you know, we have uh, on first row, we have Scott DeRue, and we have Jeffrey Bush, and then on, on uh, next to him, we have, I mean, you know what I mean? And they go, well, what do he say? But if the, if the graphics are up, no one will go, hey, he missed per- oh, oh, well. You know what I mean? Like, just say Anna Carrasco is fourth, uh, Scott DeRoe and Jeffrey Woods, and then on row four, you go, wait a minute, what did he say? And then, like you said, when during the course of the race, just go, and Big Jeffrey takes, takes the win. <laughs> well, <laughs> you learn different tricks on it. And, like, I remember with Top Rack, it took me ages to be able to say Razgarioglu. Yeah. So I ended up, he was Top Rack. Yeah. He was the 21-year-old Turkish rider. He was the Pachetti Kawasaki rider. He was number 54. He was Keenan Safoglu's prodigy. He was all these things, but he was never his actual name because I couldn't say it. So you end up always having to find different ways for that. And I found that like whenever you do the Spanish championship, that was that was the hardest one. You know, doing CEV Moto 2 or something like that, there's always some names in that where you're just there like, I just have no idea. How to say that. An Irishman just can't say as well and it's at the end of the day it's one of it's one of the things that you want to be able to say the names correctly everyone does no one wants to insult someone 
but there's some names that as an Irishman you're just there like no chance no chance I'm going to be able to say that one lads now, do people ever give you shit because you're an Irishman with a last name of English do they ever give you shit because of that only only foreigners I never got anything at home about it really <laughs> only, only people like us huh <laughs> yeah no, no, no one here ever said anything about it <laughs> Maybe it's because, like, you know, the whole family's called it, so that probably made it a bit easier. I went to school with, with three of my cousins. Okay. So, you know, immediately there are some people that have got your back for having that name. <laughs> okay. Who is it? Okay, what's, what's your best story? Is it coming from MotoGP or Royal Superbike? Okay, with no names, no names, your best story. No names. Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, actually. One of, one of my favorite stories is probably actually from Suzuka. Okay. So... The first year I went to Suzuka, 2017, whenever I was an engineer, I lived in Tokyo for a while. For a couple of months, I was on a project over there. And I loved it. Tokyo's an unbelievable city. And uh, it's, you know, really cool. It's exactly what everyone thinks Tokyo should be. Yeah. And you go into it and it's like a whole other world. And it's unbelievable. So I, I really enjoyed being in Tokyo, but I hadn't been back for a few years. Okay. So I was booking my flights for, for uh, Suzuka. And I was booked into I was booked into uh, oh, what, uh, the there's an airport on the north side and there's an airport in the city centre as well, and I was booked on the one in the north side and uh, I, I I was thinking that's fine yeah I'll get the train from that and then I'll get the bullet train out to Suzuka and that'll work out fine I didn't really I couldn't fly any closer to Suzuka so I just said yeah, Tokyo will be fine I'll meet up with a few friends over there and everything will be good but the only problem with it was a week before Suzuka was Laguna. And I picked up pneumonia at Laguna. Oh. So I came back home from that. I ended up having to, I had to miss the Sunday race at Laguna that year because oh. of having pneumonia. And I flew back home and I was thinking, oh, right, this is going to be awful. Getting on a, you know, 16 hours of flying out to, out to Japan, this is going to be horrendous. So I was looking through my emails and, and one came in saying like upgrade to business class. And it was like 200 quid. So I was there like, there's no, there is no one that is going to turn down this offer. Even the tightest man in the world would say 200 quid for that's pretty good. So I was looking at it and I was obviously feeling like death warmed up. And right. I was there like, I'll do that. So get onto the flight, I land over in Tokyo and I'm there thinking, cool, okay. Back in Tokyo and I'm, I'm looking around and they're like, where's my hotel? Because I knew my hotel was in the airport. <laughs> I've been and there before. It wasn't anywhere. And so I, I, I asked, uh, I asked the the you know, someone at customer service or whatever, they're saying, whereabouts is the, the Park Royal Hotel? And they were saying, the what? Said, <laughs> that's what you need. And uh, then they said, oh, that is in, that's in the other airport. And I was there like, what? <laughs> so it turns out they the wrong airport because when they changed the, they changed the class of ticket, they changed the airport destination as well. Obviously, I didn't read any of this whenever, like, I looked at the email. So I got on a, got on a train and I got down to got down to my hotel. Everything was fine. And then I went out to Suzuka. Had fun at the race. I was telling some of the guys this. And, and Michael Vandermark found it very funny. And he thought, like, oh, yeah, you know, all the traveling you do and you can't even read your, you can't even read your, your emails. So the race finishes up anyway. And uh, I work on the Monday and I'm flying home on Monday night. So I get the train back to Tokyo. And I'm waiting in the airport. Now, I always arrive at the airport really early. Um, yeah. like It's a bit like for this call as well. I clicked the link the second that Wyatt sent it to me, basically. Yeah. You know, and I'm just sitting there waiting for it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you're, if, you're not, if you're not early, you're not on time. Right. And uh, I'm at an airport proper early. And I'm there like, 
it's very quiet. <laughs> and sure enough, it was very quiet. So I went and I checked the boards and they said like, oh, the flight to Dubai or wherever it was I was going to was uh, was going to leave at like 2.30. And I was looking at, I was looking at my phone and I was like, no, it's like at a 9.30 or something <laughs> like that. And then it turns out that I looked at my phone again and it turns out, lo and behold, by changing the first leg of the flight, the second leg of the flight got changed as well. So then I'm there like... Oh. So I realise I'm at the wrong airport and I realise I have to get up to the other airport and the clock's obviously ticking at this stage. But instead of thinking about like getting onto a bus or getting onto a train and getting yourself up to the airport, instead all you can think about is just like beating the crap out of your suitcase because <laughs> you're just so annoyed with yourself about it. So I did that for, you know, probably half an hour. I get on a bus and then, you know, I, I, I'm driving back up to the other airport. But as I'm leaving this airport, I take a picture of it and I send a picture of like, it's a nice sunset. The, the air traffic control towers here. There's planes all here. And I send this picture to Van der Mark and I said, isn't this a lovely airport, Mikey? And he says, it is, Steve. And I said, it would be even better if it was my airport. <laughs> so lo and behold, obviously enough, every time I go back to Japan, I always get a bit of shit about this. And that'd be fine, except for the very next year, I also fucked up my book as well. So it turns out that I can't be trusted to do anything with a travel book in Japan. You sound like me, honestly. I used to, I, when I travel, I never really researched it. When I went to Aston, I literally go, I, I saw where the track is, I saw where the airport in Amsterdam. I go, how far can this be? So it's like two inches, it's fine. Yeah, I, <laughs> exactly what I did. I go, so I booked the hotel eight miles from the airport in Amsterdam. And I not realizing Aston was two hours away. I had to wake up, I had to wake up at four thirty in the morning every day to go to the uh, to the race, because dumbass here didn't research it. And I go, yeah, that was real smart, BT. I remember that. Yeah. And and on, and on race day, I got up at I think at four because it was a line at seven o'clock getting in. I missed the start of Moto Three FP One. I mean Moto Three uh, quali- um, uh, warm up, and I was pissed. I missed the start of uh, Moto Three, and I was pissed on that. I remember that. And uh, I, that happened to me one year getting into Aston as well. I missed a Moto 3 race because of it. What did you do? What did you do? I got caught in the traffic. They, they, those people love their shit. You know what? I like their passion, though, because even on the way out, on the way out, I was so tired that it was a big, long line. So I said, you know what? I took a nap in my car. Woke up, it was still a line, right? Took another nap, woke up, it was still a line. I said, you serious? So I got in line, and I drove, and it was a line, line, line. So I got some gas at one of the highways, you know, going into Amsterdam. And as I was there, I was, I was, I was at the track for so long, I saw Danny Pedroza's uh, transport truck pass by. And everybody was on the side of the road waving. It was the most... It was it, the wave of emotion just swept over me. Those people love their racing, man. But yeah, I was in line and I'm in line. You know, I'm, I don't know anybody over there. And I look over and there's a guy who I know who uh, is friend with the people from Erda that I know. And we looked at each other like, are you serious? Like in a line going into the track, bumper to bumper traffic. I look over and I know the guy next to me. I mean, that's when you know it's meant to be, man. And that's why I love and That's why I love this life. I'm going to ask you a, a, a real quick question because, my God, the time is going. I'm going to ask you, who was the best rider, World Superbike, not named Ray or Redding? It depends on how you look at it. I think if I was looking at uh, who, if I was a, a team manager trying to take a rider, you're looking at probably Top Rack because he's, the you know, he's a good age, he's won races, and uh, he's he's fast, you know, so... That would probably be how I view it. You know, if you're looking at like who's 24, who's won races, who's going to be a good rider for your team, Top Rack's that guy. 
I think if you were looking at other factors, you know, there's there's the field in superbikes right now is so good. You know, like I I'm 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 sick telling everyone how good superbikes actually is right now because they want to just look at it as oh another year where Johnny did all the winning, whereas really you're looking at it where there's probably 15 riders in the field now that are all MotoGP class riders. None of them are going to be out of their depth if they went on to a MotoGP grid. Whereas probably 10 years ago, you were looking at a much smaller number. Yeah. And I think even whenever you look back into like the glory years of superbikes in the in the late 90s and the mid 90s, the number of those guys that would have been elite MotoGP riders probably was smaller than what we have now. I, honestly, I can't wait to see what Locatelli does. I love that kid. What he did, to me, what he did in Supersport this year, he kicked ass and took names later. He almost went undefeated. He really did. I think that race in Barcelona was so screwed up with the, you know, with the, uh, the, in the wet and, and how it went down. I think he got screwed out of that win. But what Locatelli did, that was domination. I haven't seen it in a long time. The way he did it, to me, it seemed like it was like, it was like he was, he's like a he like Floyd Mayweather that whole year, if you ask me. He kind of like went in, kind of like, you know, established a jab, you know, took his time. He'd been, he'd been fourth place maybe, a couple laps. He's like, oh, shit, is he going to get beat? And then all of a sudden, he dropped that hammer on him. So, and he's still young enough. And I thought he, and I thought he did okay in Moto2. You know, he was, he was top 10 in Moto2. He was finishing top 10, but he never really got over that hump. He never really got over that hump. He was a consistent podium placer. So, when he went over, I said, you know, I think he's going to do well. I had no no idea what he was. I had no idea that he was going to kick ass like he did. So I'm looking forward to see what he does. How do you think he'll do? Yeah, well, like last year, Locatelli was one of those. It was like I hadn't seen a beating like it since someone took someone's lunch money. <laughs> like he was just running the run table on everyone. Yeah, he did. And uh, what we saw from him was stuff we'd never seen in that class before. Now it's it's worth noting as well that obviously Supersport isn't as deep as it had been in the past, but he also was able to do things that against established riders that shouldn't have been done. So that's where it's going to be interesting to see what happens whenever he jumps onto a superbike. But I also wouldn't expect too much from him on a superbike. I think it's 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 very difficult to jump in there. He's lucky that he's got a good team around him. He's got Andrew Pitt, who's worked with Lowe's and Vandermark over yes. the last few years. Yes. So he's going to have a good crew around him. But it's all going to come down to what's your expectation for him. And your expectation probably shouldn't be too high because he's coming in as a rookie in the class. But... You know, if he's able to come in and do a good job, then I think top tens and you know a few really good races would be a good season for him. You think Gerloff would be a good would be a good example of how you know you can you can have those high points through a season, and that's someone that already had two years of superbike experience. For Locatelli, he's having to learn everything. I honestly, I can't. But to me, I mean, everybody's gonna look at Ray and Redding, which they should. I mean, I'm looking forward to that battle, Ray and Redding, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Gerloff does. But I just think, honestly, you gotta look at uh, uh, Raz, uh, Raz uh, Keenan's prodigy, the, the, the Turkish guy, <laughs> the Turkish rider. <laughs> <laughs> with the Turkish rider. I want to see because if you ask me, we've given him that little bit of uh, leeway, like, oh, he's coming up. Well, I think now he's got to. I think now is the time. Now we have to 
to really, really establish himself as a leader for a championship and said, okay, he's won races. Okay, that's good. And, you know, the year before, okay, he, you know, now, I think this year now is, is the tell, telltale sign. Is he going to be the champion that we think he's going to be? So I think him and you got, you know, Lowe still has something left. And, I, and what and Redding wants that championship. And Ray's not ready to give it up. But I want to see what Locatelli, I just love Locatelli. I want to see what he does, man. And I want to see what Dominica Gerter does in World Supersport. I think he's going to do well. Hopefully he'll he'll get uh you know he's on a Yamaha and with that with that team and I think he'll I think he'll bond with that Yamaha really quick. I hope I like to see him win a championship. He deserves it. I like to see him win it. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see what what Dami can do. I think it's good that he's gone into the superbike paddock. I would have liked to have seen him on a superbike, but uh, I think it's good that he's got a chance now to win races and see if he can hook it all up. The good thing about making a jump over to Supersport is there is now no hiding place for a rider. You know, now there's none of this, there's none of this stuff about, oh, he won Moto2 races a few years ago. Suddenly you have to actually get the wins. You have to be able to, to perform well. It's a bit like the same for Tito moving across to be on the Barney Ducati. Yes. You can't really have any excuses. So now suddenly he needs to be able to show, you know what? He's still the rider that won Moto2 World Championships. Yes. So that's what that's what's interesting when riders come across the Superbike paddock. It's not that it's easier for them. Scott showed that this year. Like for me, I thought Reading did a really good job at probably half the rounds and did a good job at a few others, but was a bit too inconsistent. And he needs to make a step up next year. And he came in with a really good team. He knew the bike, he knew the tires. He had to learn a little bit about being in a World Championship rather than BSB. But you know, he showed that it's not easy to jump in and do a really good job. And we saw that with tons of other riders. Like, I just look at that field and you look at whether it's on the Yamaha and you've got the likes of Top Rack and Gerlach are going to be really good, whether you've got the Kawasaki's. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with the likes of Lowe's for a full season yes. with that team. Because even though this is going to be a second year, last year was such a strange year for those riders that changed teams that maybe we didn't really get to see their full potential. Right. So I'm interested to see what he does. And it's a bit like that with Top Rack as well. Because Top Rack last year, some races, like Estoril, he was incredible. Yes. And then somewhere like Aragon, he was nowhere. Then he disappears. So if he's able to be a bit more consistent, he'd, he'd be great. Yeah, like I said, I, I really think this is this is the year he has to really show that he's a championship contender. He has to be, to me, in the top, at least top three, and, and, and get beat by no more than 20 points at the end of the year, to me, for him to be considered a, a, a championship contender. It's great that he wins races, but, I mean, you know, everybody's won a couple races here and there. I mean, I think, what, Gerloff almost won. I mean, it, you know, you have to be consistent throughout the whole year. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Ray is kind of in Redding's head the way Marquez was in Doby's head? Because when you watch that, when you watch that documentary, man, I mean, you see how Doby, you know, has a cerebral approach, but man, Marquez, it to me, it just reeked of, I can't beat Mark, and it's and it's and it's weighing on me. I mean, and if you saw Reading toward the end of the year, those little mistakes. I mean, that little, like, I think it was it was it Aragon, the little mistakes that he made that was so crucial when it was the time that you couldn't make those mistakes. And it's like, because if he would have got it together and wouldn't have had those crashes, wouldn't have had that, that one crucial crash, he could have took it down to the last race of the year. So do you think raising his head? Well, I think what we saw through this year was in Phillip Island, we saw a rider that was really comfortable. He picked up three podiums, looked really good. We went to Hareth, and that was his best weekend of the season. He picked up two wins, was beaten by Johnny in the short race, but... You know, Scott looked great. So he had six races at the start of the season where he looked like he was going to come in and do a great job in superbikes. 
And then we went to Portimao, where Johnny could win on a unicycle. <laughs> and suddenly you go to Aragon, to the two back-to-back rounds in Aragon, where everyone thought that Ducati was going to win. And Ducati did a great job in Aragon. But the problem with it was, it was Reading, it was Rinaldi. I think Chaz had a good race there as well. So it was all the Ducatis were doing a good job. So instead of it being where you're able to take big points out of Ray, you end up not really being able to to take a bite out of his lead, despite there being those races where you should have been able to do it. And I think at the, the next races after that, that's whenever we saw that Scott was a bit like what he was in uh, 2013 when he was going up for the Moto2 Two. World Championship against yeah. Paul. Because back then he always talked about he was heavier than Paul. You know, his weight was costing him this, all those kind of factors. And then suddenly after Aragon, he was talking about, oh, well, Rinaldi's able to use the soft tire and I can't. And instead of it being focused on beating Johnny, he was talking an awful lot about the fact that someone else on a Ducati could do things that he couldn't do. So from the outside looking in, we immediately all thought he's 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 already trying to deflect stuff. Yes. Now, Scott made a good point whenever I interviewed him in Magni Cora after that, because I asked him about it and he said, yeah, but Johnny doesn't have to deal with that because he's always been the fastest Kawasaki. He doesn't have someone on the same bike that can do different things to him. And I thought it was interesting to see the difference between their two mindsets just in that couple of weeks. It really showed you why Johnny does so much winning and why Scott's a great rider and could win a championship easily. Yeah. But he needs to be able to kind of, instead of being like up and down, he needs to be a little bit more level all the way through the year. It's the six inches between the ears, man. And that's where it is. It's the six inches between the ears. Because let me tell you something. To me, Ray, correct me if I'm wrong, Ray is kind of like Rocky Marciano when you're fighting. It's like, okay, these punches ain't hurting that much. And by, by, by the eighth or ninth round, you're like, God damn, he's beating the shit out of me, and I can't do anything to him. I mean, but he did the same thing to Bautista. When Bautista was kicking ass at the beginning of the year, he was kind of talking shit, but not really talking, you know, talking shit racer-wise, you know, where it's not really in your face. But it's like, yeah, you know, I'm showing these dudes how to do this and that. And then once Ray started getting in his ass and he had a couple of crashes here and there and he was like all shook. He was shook like Elvis Presley, man. And then Ray just start bam, 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 start firing off that jab, start winning, winning, winning. And then Batista was like, well, you know, it's the bike is, you know, it's, it's just it's kind of hard. And I'm kind of getting used to it. And it's like Ray does that to you. He gets in your head. I mean, you think you got him. You, I mean, like I said, I mean, Batista reeled off what, four or five in a row? Or was it six in a row? It was 11 in a row. Yeah, I mean, what he did, you're like, oh, shit, Ray's going there. And Ray just just calm like a champion. That, to me, was a champion. He didn't, I mean, from the outside, he didn't panic. Like I said, he just, bam, got his jab back. Boom. It was like, like, Floyd May, like Floyd Mayweather's dad in the corner when he fought McGregor. No offense. When he fought McGregor and, and his dad goes, hey, let's turn it up. And Floyd goes, okay. And then you look what happened. And to me, that's what Johnny Ray did. What makes Ray so damn good where he's in your head, where you think you got him down, you think you got him beat, and he comes back and he takes your fucking soul? What is it about him? Uh, Well, it's just the relentlessness. You know, you look at what he's able to achieve year on year. And, you know, when you talk to when you talk to his teammates, they they won't really say that Johnny does anything that they can't do. Right. But he just maximizes everything. He's got a really good team around him. But I think probably the biggest factor for Ray is his side of the garage. They look for all the different options. They look at what the bike needs and what Johnny needs. And they really are focused on being able to get the most out of that. And I think that's where it comes down to 
Paribas is a former rider. He's a 500 Grand Prix rider. Right. So, you know, he's a guy that understands that the rider doesn't care if the bike is upside down and inside out, as long as it feels good and it's faster. So he just does everything he can to try and make sure that Ray has that underneath him. And that's what makes the biggest difference because they've got total trust in one another. And I think whenever you're all the other teams and all the other riders and crew chiefs, you can't have that total trust and total belief because only one man's done the winning for six years. So it's that snowball effect that just keeps keeps growing all the time. Right to me, Ray basically is the Marquez of, SB, of WSBK. If you beat him, you're like, I beat him. I beat Ray. I mean, and that's what it's like. But over the season, I mean, you can beat Marquez here or there. Like Dovey beat him in, in, in Austria. And, 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 oh, when, and when Renz beat him in a, um, um, uh, uh, I was there, Silverstone. And you could tell that ride to the podium, it was great on Marquez's soul. And that's what, and Ray to me is the same. Is that You can beat him here and there, but over the season, over the season, he will mentally exhaust you or he will make you go into a mistake and that to me is why and I don't know why but there's things in life I never got over and I never got over Ray's statement when he goes you know it was I think his contract was up and you know it was like okay uh, is MotoGP gonna give him a chance and he said I'm on the wrong side of 26 and that's why you know he re-signed up with Kawasaki and I don't know why but that's one of the things that that hurts me to my core and I mean it from the bottom of my heart there's things that hurt me that people don't like when Gary Coleman died and 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 his wife called the cops you can hear him in, in the background like help and she wouldn't help him that I never got over that and I never got over Ray saying I'm on the wrong side of 26 and I go I it, it just hurts me when I see I see him a couple of times and it just hurts me that he didn't really get a legit shot and life ain't fair but I was like and people talk shit in this and I know you're closer than, than than I am but it's like why didn't he get that legit factory shot when he was at the top of his game not that he's not at the top of his game now but you know how it is and they always want the the, the shiny new thing everybody wants the young girl everybody you know when the veteran you know the more mature woman is actually the better woman for you but everybody wants that you know what i mean everybody wants the new shiny thing coming up why is it he didn't get that factory wide ride when he could have at 26 or at 25 you know what i mean because he had the the rights MotoGP wasn't like it is now you know if you look at when when Cal went to MotoGP is, is, is a good example of it because that would have been 2012. Mm. And at that stage, yeah. you had, you know, limited factory seats. You had satellite teams that weren't up to scratch. You know, you didn't have it where, you know, Pramac back then wasn't Pramac now. True, 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 true. You know? Yeah. So instead of it being an actual appealing ride to go to, there was very limited options for, for anyone to go. Like if you were a good rider looking at a satellite seat for the following season in like 2011 or thereabouts, you were really looking at a Tectois Yamaha. Yeah. You were looking at maybe an LCR. You know, you weren't really looking at Ducati. Ducati were struggling with a factory team, never mind satellite teams. So at that stage, there wasn't really the options. There wasn't, you know, Suzuki weren't there, KTM weren't there. Like a Prilla yeah. mightn't be too appealing to too many people right now, but it's still a factory seat. <laughs> right. So there's three factory teams, six bikes that weren't there, and instead you were looking at a grid that was filled with CRT bikes. That's true, you know, yeah. There was no one saying, you know what I really want to be on? I want to be on the, uh, the PBM bike, or I want to be on the IOTA bike. I want to be on this, I want to be on that. It was only really from 2015, 16, 17 that we had those satellite teams actually getting more and more competitive. So it was around that time that it became appealing for a rider to jump onto a satellite bike. Now, if you're someone like Johnny Ray in 2014, whenever he's been 
with Honda, he was on the Tenkade bike, he was earning good money. Right. And then you jump onto the Kawasaki and then you win races with Kawasaki, you win a championship, you win again in 16. So by the end of your first Kawasaki contract, like at that stage, Johnny would have been 26 at that point probably. And uh, you're looking at it and thinking, why would I leave? If I leave, I'm going to be in the mid-grid in MotoGP because he would have looked at it and seen Eugene Laverty go from being a title contender in superbikes yeah. to you know, racing at the back of the field on an Aspar bike. Right. So what would be appealing about that? Absolutely nothing. True. So Johnny didn't get his opportunities, but they probably weren't really there either. So at that point of his career, he missed out on it. But then a couple of years ago, there were opportunities for him, but they weren't real opportunities. There were, you know, Suzuki, when they had Ian Oney and there was talk that maybe they're going to ditch him halfway through his contract. And that's whenever, you know, Johnny's management team got, got contacted by Suzuki and, you know, something might have happened for that. But the Japanese honor doesn't really want to say that they were that they were wrong with the decision, that they want to terminate a contract early. So instead, that sort of passed by for Ray. And then he's now at the point where he doesn't really have anything to gain for it. Yeah. You know, unless he's unless he's been offered, you know, a Repsol Honda, I don't think he's going to be in too much of a hurry yeah. to jump over. Why should he's he? already ridden the Repsol bike, so he's got those letters. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah, why should him? He's at the top of the heap now. He seems happy, content. Now he's got to fight off the young kids. He's at the top of the heap of where he is. So why not? You know? And before I, hey, before I wrap it up, God, I could go forever. Before I wrap it up, I'm going to go one word answer. One word answer. The, the champion in World Superbike 2021 is? Ray. God damn it. Okay. Champion, World Supersport. Hmm. I go with your man, Dommy. Okay, okay, okay. Champion, World Super Sport 300. Come on, I can't. Yeah, come on. I no, come on. World, I, I'll go with the boss man again. I'll go with Jeffrey Man. <laughs> go back to back. You mean Jeffrey Boos? Jeffrey Jeffrey Boos. Paul Dutchman with the number one place on the Kawasaki. <laughs> I'm going Anna Carrasco. I'm going Anna. I'm, I'm Anna gonna, Anna's going to come back and stake her claim. Well, Anna's got a lot to come back from is the big problem. But the good thing is Superbikes doesn't start up until April. So that's another few months for her to recover. She'll do it, man. She'll do it. Okay, real quick. Uh, Your favorite circuit. Favorite circuit. Anywhere. It doesn't need to be a circuit. It could be Suzuka. Isle of Man Mountain Course. Isle of Man, okay. Hey, what happened at that bar? The Crocciati? Is that what it was? What happened there? I never never went there. There's no no story for me from there, mate. I've never never gone to Craig. You're lying. Oh, we're gonna say that for another day. I know there's some. I know there's some shit there, man. I've been. I'm trying to get. I was trying to get dirt on you I mean, the whole you, time. You, you can pick other places on the Isle of Man, but not the crank. <laughs> we're gonna go. I don't know when I'm gonna see, man. I hope I see you this year, buddy. I really do. I hope I see you this year, man. I was so happy when I got when I you said yes. I was so hoping so because you know we've always have a, a good talk when we see each other. It's always a fun time. I gotta get out here. There's another show coming in, but man, thank you so much for your time. Man, you know I appreciate you, Steve. Seriously, I, I love finding out about. It. I know you lived in Texas, so next time I see you, we'll go get some barbecue. Hopefully, I have vegan barbecue, and we'll go get some barbecue, and we'll talk, and we'll have a good time, buddy. Yeah, perfect, man. It was good to see you again, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate. It. Thank you guys watching uh, for Tales from the Gemini uh, next week, and so thank my friend Steve English. And like we say about this time, peace.